Loved ones in Christ, please turn with me in Holy Scripture to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. In the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, first Matthew and then Mark, second Gospel. And today we turn our attention still in chapter 1 to verses 21 through 34. Open your hearts now with faith to hear the holy and inspired word of the Lord. This is speaking of Jesus and his now four disciples, and it says, beginning of verse 1, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands, and even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Blessed Lord, who has caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all the people of God said, Amen. Well, you hear it in the news every time something extraordinary happens. Witnesses always say it started out like any ordinary day. It was the same kind of day that, that, I, that, that always begins. It doesn't matter if it's a major milestone in a person or community's life or maybe a national tragedy. But witnesses always end up saying it started out like an ordinary morning. Life can take big surprises, sudden turns. And sometimes what starts off as an ordinary day ends up with our jaws being dropped. And we have just such an occasion recorded for us here in Mark chapter 1. Two different events take place. One in a synagogue and one in a home. 
But they're both bound together in that they happen over the same day, the course of one day. Verse 21, you'll see, shows us that it's the Sabbath day. And there, verse 32, we read of that day coming to an end, the sun setting. And both of these events have happened within that span. On this day, Jesus does things that make people's jaws drop in astonishment. But Mark makes it clear that something even deeper is going on. Jesus is doing something self-consciously that is even deeper than just the response of astonishment. Jesus is stepping forward now as the true Israelite. Just as Israel did before him, Jesus has passed through the waters and he has been tempted in the wilderness. For Israel, that was passing through the waters of the Red Sea and then later through the Jordan River as they came into the land of Canaan. And for the people of Israel, they they marched for 40 years being tempted in the wilderness. But as we saw in the earlier verses of this chapter of Mark's Gospel, Jesus has passed through the waters of John the Baptist's baptism in the Jordan River. And he's been tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And now he steps forward to do something that the Israelites did. Conquest. The Israelites crossed into the promised land and began a conquest. And on this first Sabbath of his recorded public ministry, Jesus begins his own holy conquest. What we have read about in this passage today is holy war. It is holy war. Jesus, as the true Israelite, is stepping forward to bring about the conquest of God. What does this conquest look like? What does it look like? First, it looks like the old ways passing away. Jesus' conquest looks like the old ways passing away. It, It includes doing away with Old Covenant religion. The Old Covenant refers not to the entire Old Testament, again, but it refers to the law that God made, the covenant that God made with Moses and the Israelites. We're talking basically Exodus chapter 20 and onward for the rest of the Old Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. And the conquest of that old way of doing things, the destruction of that old way of doing things begins here. In verses 21 and 22, it's clear that an ordinary synagogue gathering is taking place. Now, historians are actually not clear on how synagogues popped up. What's the origin of the synagogue? If you were to go to the library and look up this question in a variety of religious encyclopedias, you'd get a lot of different answers. Because the history is a little mysterious how they ended up becoming so prominent. But what what is clear enough is that the synagogue helped to bring the teaching of the temple to all the people. As you're probably aware, the Jews were required to make pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem during the various feasts of their liturgical year. But synagogues were gatherings that took place all over. The temple is one place located in in Jerusalem, but synagogues are all over, whether scattered about the region of Palestine or among the nations. That's why in the book of Acts, as the apostles are going all over 
There's synagogues that they're going into and preaching in. Wherever the Jews settled, synagogues eventually arose. Now, at this time, uh, probably what took place on Sabbath days in the synagogue was a simple liturgy. There were particular prayers and benedictions that we, we know about. They would sing psalms. There would be a reading from the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And there would be a reading from the prophets. And at some point, a leader in the synagogue would teach. And this teacher was chosen differently from community to community. But uh, it, it was almost always a prominent person in the community. And it was almost always a scribe. A scribe. Scribes were basically Bible scholars. They were the Bible scholars of their day. They were members of the clergy. So they, they, they had to actually pursue a long, years-long and intense uh, uh, schooling regimen. And then they were ordained into this office of a scribe. And since the law of Moses speaks about both religious and civil matters... Scribes not only taught the Hebrew Bible, but they also decided legal cases. They had both of these kinds of roles, and both of those things tended to happen in the synagogue. So on the Sabbath, they taught. And other days of the week, they might be deciding court cases. Now, it was in large part due to the scribes, not just them, but in large part due to them, that all kinds of extra laws had been added to the law of Moses in order to put kind of a protective shield around the law of Moses because it was already hard to obey that law. So let's put other things in place so that we don't fail to obey that law. Making that already very strict law even more burdensome. Those are the scribes. And those tended to be the teachers in the synagogues. So now here's the situation that we find ourselves in in this passage. There is a Jewish congregation... Here in the northern town of Capernaum in Galilee. And we know that the temple is far south down in Jerusalem. And so these devout Jews gather every Sabbath in their synagogue to hear scripture explained. And all of this helped them to maintain their connection to that temple that was far away. It helped maintain their connection to that old covenant and all of its practices the priesthood and the sacrifices and so forth. But on what started as just another Sabbath, Jesus and his newly minted disciples, James and John and Simon, who is Peter, by the way, Simon and Andrew, they now come into the synagogue and Jesus begins to teach. And Mark doesn't even feel the need to tell us what he actually said. <laughs> Maybe he's saying what he, what he was preaching in verse 15. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Something tells me that that was the, the major tune that he was singing throughout his preaching ministry. But Mark doesn't tell us specifically what he's saying in the synagogue. What he does record is the response. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. This response here has the sense of being overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And this is a response that Jesus' teaching will elicit throughout the Gospels. And sometimes even the teaching of the apostles in the book of Acts will elicit this response. 
Think of the people of Israel. On, on the day when God gave the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai, they are completely overwhelmed. And they say, they say to Moses, tell God to stop talking. It's too much for us to handle. They're overwhelmed. We get some, a, a certain sense of a similar feeling of being overwhelmed from these people in the synagogue. Why are they overwhelmed? Mark tells us twice, verse 22 and verse 27. Because Jesus' teaching came with authority. And specifically, authority not like the scribes. Whatever insights the scribes had, it just wasn't doing much for the people of God. At this point, they're still an occupied people. They're, They're basically just a vassal people to the Romans. At this point, the glory of God had not yet returned to the temple like they were hoping. At this point, though the scribes are teaching and writing and they are, they're a whole class of people, the prophecies about the Messiah still hadn't come to pass. So whatever merits the scribes had, it wasn't leading to much. Not much is changing. But now, one comes into the midst of the people in their synagogue whose teaching is not just an explanation of old prophecies already made, But his teaching actually is itself prophecy because he speaks the very word of God to the people of God. The same Jesus whose powerful call compelled these new disciples to drop their nets and to go and to follow him. That same Jesus is now overwhelming a synagogue full of people. He's beginning a holy conquest before their very eyes. What we will find by the end of Mark's gospel is that Jesus has come to destroy this temple and put something new in place. And so the days of the temple are numbered and the scribes are being overshadowed overshadowed, and Jesus' teaching is demonstrating with great power and authority that something new is taking place. That's what his conquest looks like. It looks like the old ways beginning to pass away. It also looks like the purification of his people. The purification of his people. The passage describes Jesus doing two main things. He casts out a demon and he heals a sick person. Then in verses 32 through 34, he does the same things again. uh, Exorcising demons and healing the sick. He does that to countless others, but it's in summarized form. The people wait as they're supposed to, according to at least the law of the scribes. They wait for the sun to set on the Sabbath, so that it's not the Sabbath anymore. And then they bring the sick to the door of uh, Simon and Andrew's house. And Jesus continues doing what he had just done in the synagogue and in the house earlier. With great authority, Jesus is laying waste to the forces of darkness and to the consequences of sin. It is purifying his people. That's what his conquest looks like. A purification of his people. Now, the conquest in the Old Testament, which is in the book of Joshua, that conquest also was a purification. It was other things, but it was a purification. It was a purification for God's people. And it was a purification of the land that God had promised. Because God had sworn by oath 
that the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would receive this land. But that land was filled with idols. And it was filled with diabolical false worship. It was filled with that because it was the people of the nations, the Canaanites, who lived there. So God sent his people in before dwelling there to purify it and to cleanse it. Numbers chapter 33 verses 50 through 56 tells us that that's the specific design is to come and get rid of the idols. But the people of God were constantly enticed by these same idols. They don't actually take care of the conquest fully. They let some of the people that were living in the land of Canaan continue to live there. They don't fully deal with all of the idols of the nations. They don't fully deal with all of these false worship practices. And so they are constantly intrigued. What are these guys up to? What's this God do for the people? Let's try that. In fact, they don't even have to get there to the promised land before they're enticed. They're enticed by the idols of the nations while Moses is still on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. They show to be true what is true of all of us, which is that our hearts are inclined to hate God, as we say every other week or so. We are constantly looking for other gods to deliver us. And that's the the very sad story of the people of Israel. And so God chastens his people and he, he punishes them in order to wake them up and to bring them back into his fold. And he does this through in a variety of severe ways in the Old Testament. He does it through illness and disease. Eventually, he does it by casting them out of the land altogether in the Assyrian and the Babylonian exiles. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel is given a, a truly horrifying vision. In, in Ezekiel chapter 8. And God tells him in this vision to look into the various places of the temple, the various areas, the outer uh, courtyard, and then into the actual holy places themselves. And in each of these areas, Ezekiel sees that the leaders of Israel have brought idols into the temple of God. And they have carved graven images of unclean animals onto the temple in this vision. They've brought abominable things into the holy place. Now then, think about what it means that a demon-possessed man has entered into a synagogue on the Sabbath. This is a profoundly disturbing scene that takes place here. Uh, And it does not create an encouraging picture about God's people at this time. What was this guy into? That he, apparently a professing Jew of some kind, has shown up on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Oh yes, but he happens to be utterly controlled by an unclean spirit. What does that say about the people of God at this time? That he is not just being harassed by an unclean spirit, but that this spirit has now taken full enslaving power of the man and speaks for him and acts for him. This is a place of worship and now a satanic presence just struts in. An abomination has come into the holy place. That ancient serpent has come into the garden. You see the patterns that the Bible gives us? 
Now then, what is Jesus' response to this man? Does he cast out the man? No, he casts out the demon, doesn't he? He casts out the unclean spirit and thereby makes the man clean. You see, brothers and sisters, this conquest is a conquest of purification. As the prophet said, he will come and he will purify the sons of Levi. He has come now to purify his people. And he's done so mercifully. Casting out the unclean spirit in order to make this man clean. Now then, that episode ends. And in verse 29, Jesus hurriedly leaves the synagogue and he goes to the house of Simon, Simon Peter. Jesus will rename him later in the gospel. Now, you'll have to notice here that the, the nuclear family looked a little different back then. Probably, Simon Peter got married. And then, in whatever the, the, the living scenario he had was with his wife, he invited other members of the family to come live. So, Andrew, his brother, at least Andrew, his brother, lives there. And at least Simon's mother-in-law lives there as well. This is relatively common in the ancient world and especially among the Jews. Uh, a much more hospitable and uh, long-suffering way of living with one another. But when they arrive, they, they find that uh, Simon's mother-in-law is bedridden with a fever. Listen to John Calvin on this verse. Calvin says, Fevers and other diseases... Famine, pestilence, and calamities of every description are God's heralds by whom he executes his judgments. All these things that bring about suffering, whether disease or pestilence or famine, God uses these things in a more severe way in the Old Testament, but he uses them more broadly even in our day to preach. To preach the judgments of God that will be poured out on the last day. These things come as a warning. In other words, Simon's mom hasn't, mother-in-law hasn't done something particular that has particularly led to the fever. But rather, this fever and all other kinds of suffering are constant reminders that a curse hangs over this world. Romans 8 tells us that God has subjected this world to futility because sin has entered into the world. There's a curse and people suffer for it and Simon's mother-in-law is suffering for it. But look at how Jesus responds. With similar mercy that he showed to this demon-possessed man in the synagogue, now he shows a similar tenderness and mercy with Simon's mother-in-law. As he reaches out to her and touches her hand, and lifts her up, and the illness goes away. Whether the enemy is an illness, or the enemy is the devil himself, our king is on a holy conquest. And the result of this conquest, this is what it looks like. This conquest looks like, and is the purification of his people. Lastly this morning. This holy conquest changes how we speak and how we act. You'll notice in these two, two different episodes here in, in our passage today, Jesus' conquest is, is put forward in both words and in deeds. 
in actually kind of a, a neat and orderly way, um, which we'll look at in just a minute here. And because we see him inflicting this conquest in both word and in deed, it ought to change how we speak and how we act as well. Notice first how these events foreshadow the cross and the resurrection of our Lord. Here in the synagogue, Jesus silences the demon and he casts him out. But the full disarming, the full hamstringing of the whole demonic realm will happen at the cross. That's how the Apostle Paul interprets the meaning of the cross. He says in Colossians chapter 1.15 that Christ disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This exorcism is a foreshadowing of what will fully take place when Christ binds Satan fully in his crucifixion. And likewise in the lifting up of Simon's mother-in-law. That's an image that we'll see several times in different healings in the gospel. He doesn't just heal, but he raises someone up in order to heal them. And in doing so, Christ prefigures his own resurrection, not from illness, not from debilitation that is temporary, but from death itself. This ought to change how we speak and act as believers. You'll notice with the demon-possessed man that Jesus speaks, and the people end up speaking as well. Uh, The demon speaks, actually, too. There's a lot of dialogue going on in those verses. Now, it's not clear among those in the synagogue who actually believed in Jesus and believed his gospel. Mark Mark isn't telling us that. But their recognition of Jesus' authority is a good example for Christians to follow. We have scribes in our own day. We we specifically have Bible, Bible scholars in our own day that have a whole lot to say that actually is not in line with Scripture. Uh, and there's, there's uh, more formal scribes and there's informal scribes. It seems like everybody and their brother has a YouTube or a TikTok profile these days. And they use it to make sure that the world knows that Jesus claims whatever their ideology happens to be about. They co-opt the Son of God for their own ungodly agendas. Uh, many say, Jesus hung out with prostitutes, you know. And so, whatever, whatever I do with my sexual life, Jesus is good with it, and you ought to be too. Um, and on and on it goes. You, you pick, pick the pet movement, and Jesus is apparently behind it. Whatever the social and political agenda happens to be, the scribes tell us that uh, Jesus would be all for it, and that Jesus was all for it. Dear brothers and sisters, Jesus will not be co-opted. If we truly hear his voice, if we hear the voice of our shepherd, then it will change the way that we talk about him, and it will change the way that we hear others talk about him. Do not be afraid of the anti-Christian messages of our day. They're a dime a dozen, and they're all over the place. Um, Sternly war against them, through the word and the spirit and through prayer. 
But do not be afraid of anti-Christian messages and sentiments here in our age. Because here is a teaching that comes with authority. Here's a teaching that causes the devil to flee. So take, take up this teaching with confidence and, and allow it to change how you speak about Christ. Be careful that you do not uh, fall into the temptation of co-opting Jesus for things that he did not speak about. Or that he did not speak about in the way that you were speaking about it. But allow his proclamation of the kingdom to sanctify your own mouth in the way that you speak about him. And do so then with confidence. Now, while in verses 23 through 37 there in the synagogue are dialogue heavy, verses 29 through 31 have no dialogue at all there in the house. With Simon's mother-in-law, Mark is emphasizing Jesus' actions. His deeds. Jesus acts, and then Simon's mother-in-law acts in response. In fact, she responds not just with some general action, but verse 31 shows us that she responds with service. The moment that she's healed by the authoritative word of Jesus, she's up and serving them. With almost certainly a meal. Uh, in fact, that may be why Jesus and the, the disciples were coming, and then they find out that she's actually sick. The, the proper response to the work of Christ for us is exemplified here. The Christ, by his cross and resurrection, heals us spiritually that we might serve, that we might show Christian love and charity to one another, and that with humility, we don't extol whatever has happened to us, but we extol the one who's done it. By serving. His actions, in other words, ought to change our actions. Believing in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a mental concept that we think about and then you're good to go. But truly believing in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes the way that we behave. And Christ's disciples are to be marked by love and service for one another. You see that that is what will allow us to speak with confidence and a certain authority against anti-Christian messages in this age. Is that the mouths of the world will be stopped when they see our love and our service for one another and for them. What Christ speaks ought to change how we speak and what Christ does ought to change what we do. Christ's call to follow Him is a call to serve. Serving one another in Christian love, meeting one another's needs, sharing in fellowship, and even praying for those who persecute us. Loved ones in Christ, our Lord proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived. The powers of the new creation are now intruding into this age. And here in this passage, he demonstrates it. He demonstrates the nearness of the kingdom of God. By bringing the conquest of that kingdom into our time. The forces of darkness and of sin have met their match. They've met their decisive match. When he speaks, the demons flee. And when he acts, God's people are healed. Therefore, brothers and sisters, look to this Christ and begin to speak and act in accordance with him. Amen. Let us pray. Our merciful God, 
You are pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word. And we ask now that you would grant all of us the grace that we need, that we may not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Please would you give us the grace of your Holy Spirit, that we may believe what has been proclaimed to us, and may we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do and in all that we say. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.